1: Previously, on IVFML.
0: Finally, there's something wrong with Simon. Finally, it's someone else's fault.
1: I wanted to crawl into a hole and die.
0: In today's episode, we're gonna talk about male factor infertility.
1: And if you like marital squabbling, we're going to get into the blame game and some long simmering infertility related arguments that honestly still aren't resolved.
0: Fun, I can't imagine why doing this in public would be a bad idea. Okay, to recap. After two miscarriages, Simon and I dove into IVF. But after our first cycle produced only one genetically normal embryo, our doctor told us there might be a new problem.
1: When they tried to mix Anna's eggs with my sperm, nothing happened. They had to do a procedure called intracytoplasmic sperm injection, otherwise known as ICSI, to manually inject the sperm into the eggs.
0: And after they used ICSI to create our five embryos, genetic testing revealed that only one of them is chromosomally normal. It was a weirdly low ratio for our age group, and our doctor said that most of the embryos stopped developing normally at around day three, the point at which sperm DNA usually kicks in.
1: One of the reasons this was such a shock to us is that my sperm always tested normally. In fact, the doctor always praised my sperm. Every time we did a new procedure, she complimented my hard work and frisky swimmers. She said my stats were great. They were out of this world.
0: To help explain these stats a little, we spoke with Dr. Jesse Mills, director of the men's clinic at UCLA.
1: Dr. Mills had a lot of great advice about men's health and what lifestyle factors can contribute to male factor infertility. But for now, we want to focus on the part of our interview where he described the differences between normal and abnormal sperm. Specifically, we talked about the three major factors that he looks at when doing a semen
2: analysis report.
0: First up is the number of sperm.
2: Once you do that, then it becomes very binary at first. Does a man have sperm or does he not? Does he have what we refer to as azospermia or complete absence of sperm? Or does he have oligospermia where he has just a few sperm? And then we break it further down into all of the categories of where problems can be. So from a 10,000-foot view, we look at the volume of ejaculation because if a man has too little ejaculate, even if he has lots of sperm, he may simply not have enough fluid to get into the cervix and up the uterus and have those sperm be released to give them even a chance of finding an egg. And if we then go to the volume, then we look at actually how many sperm he has, and and that's what we call the concentration, or how many sperm does he have per milliliter of ejaculate fluid.
1: The second factor Dr. Mills looks at is the motility of the sperm. Here's how he described
2: it. It's always a percentage of the entire number of sperm in an ejaculated sample, Does he have 50% moving, which is about average, because a guy makes a sperm, it lasts three or four or five days, and then it dies. And then all the other guys are coming behind and always rushing to the front line, so that at any given time, a normal ejaculate should have about 50% moving sperm.
0: The third and And final major factor Dr. Mills looks at is the morphology of the 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 sperm, which describes the sperm
2: shape. Morphology is is broken down into the anatomy of a sperm. So we start at the head, and then we look at the neck, and then we essentially look at the body or the tail. So there's really three or four parts of a morphologic assay, and each aspect of the morphologically abnormal sperm could have a different contributing factor for why he may be having difficulty initiating a pregnancy. For example, if a man has the head defect where all of his sperm are completely abnormally in the head. And we call that globospermia, where they have big fat round heads. That essentially means that that head and that man may be missing the enzyme needed to break into that egg to penetrate through the outer layer of the egg. So that's what we call an isolated morphology defect. Where all the other parameters are normal, a guy could come in with a hundred million sperm, which is exceedingly wonderful concentration of sperm, and they could all be swimming happily and doing exactly what they should be doing and just looking for that egg, and then they don't have the key to get into the lock if they have that head defect. Further, if a man has any body defects or neck defects, that often that's the engine of the sperm. So if there's something wrong with the engine morphologically or they don't have a neck, and they have what we call either a pinhead sperm or an absent neck. Those guys don't have the energy or those sperm don't have the energy to actually swim in and, and get to where they need to go. Fundamentally, all of these are just a, a way of looking under the microscope and saying, this guy probably is going to have some difficulties initiating pregnancy because the shape of the sperm is funny. But other than that, we don't really know much more of what funny means. In other words, we don't know that that always correlates to a problem with the man's DNA or the problem with the man's ability to to effectively initiate a pregnancy.
1: Finally, we asked Dr. Mills what he thought about our situation, and he explained the concept of unexplained infertility, which is when experts and doctors throw up their hands and say, we've reached the limits of scientific testing for you and have no idea what's going on. It's a devastating diagnosis, but it can also be strangely comforting.
0: So... After our first IVF cycle, the doctor came to us with this sort of weird result, which she didn't expect because Simon's sperm had always been so awesome and amazing. And it was that um, even though he collected a good sample that day...
2: Atta boy, Simon.
0: <laughs> ...that sperm didn't approach the egg or the egg was maybe throwing off some vibes that were repelling the sperm. And of the eggs and sperm that she just naturally mixed in the Petri dish, uh, only one of them fertilized out of five. And she was like, this is a really weird result. Then we did the DNA fragmentation test on Simon's sperm to see if there was some DNA problems with it. And it came back normal. And at this point, our doctor was like, we don't know what to say. So how, how common is this? And, and what exactly is unexplained infertility?
2: It is unexplained. <laughs> I mean, that's really the problem. So so you, in some ways, are, are a really challenging couple to to council because if once we figured out uh, on your side, the PCOS is very treatable. And so once they got you on, I assume the metformin and all of the, and the Clomid or whatever other drugs they use to, to regulate your cycles and, and, uh, and, and have you be the egg producer, you know, you can be and everything looks great on Simon's side, then what is going on is what, where is the uh, the bad mojo, and and we honestly don't know. It, it, mostly in the in the old days of, of uh, IVF, we, we would attribute a lot of chromosomal abnormalities on the female side. But again, there are some uh, data now so showing that there may be some male factors that lead to chromosomal abnormalities as well. So it just it tells me that 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 your DNA is not recombinating in a friendly way with Simon's DNA. That's really the only thing that we can derive from that. In other words, how do we, you know, how do we look at that and say, is there anything we can do? I mean, unfortunately, as a male reproductive specialist, I'm still a surgeon at heart. And so I'm always looking at how can I fix this? You know, is there, is there an operation I can do? Is there some way that I can fix this? And, and what we really need and don't have yet are molecular fixes.
0: I guess it's kind of cool to know that on a genetic level, Simon and I are fundamentally incompatible.
2: Not sure how that's cool <laughs> at all. It uh, just depressed me for the rest of this podcast here. I, I mean, you know, my goal is, is to make couples happy and get them the pregnancies they want. So, so I guess the, the plot thickens and we just have to figure out what to do for you next.
1: Okay, so like Dr. Mills said, we had to figure out what to do next. In our case, our fertility doctor sent me to a specialist, a high-priced surgeon who would examine the anatomical structure of my testicles to make sure there wasn't anything unusual going on.
0: That meant our baby-making plans were set for another long delay, which was disappointing. But I have to admit, I was actually kind of excited that Simon was not the one who had to answer these stupid questions about his sperm and his body instead of me doing all the work.
1: Excited is an understatement. You were fucking pumped that they'd found something wrong with me.
0: I appreciated the break from people questioning me, and I also appreciated the break from having to go to the doctor's office like two to three times a week.
1: Okay, I remember it a little differently, so I think it's time we crash this podcast right into a wall with a segment I'm calling A Gross Fucked Up Married Couple Argument That's Probably Way Too Personal for a Podcast.
0: We'll workshop that title later. Well, it's a work in progress.
1: Okay, so this is one of the biggest fights we had in this whole infertility saga.
0: Disagree.
1: Okay, you are fighting me about how big of a fight it was, so we are off to a roaring start.
0: (laughs) Okay, go ahead and get this off your chest.
1: It might sound like we were joking about how happy and excited you were, that there was something wrong with me. (laughs) But I think we're actually downplaying it. You were stoked, thrilled, over the
0: moon. Um, yeah, yeah. It's true. I was relieved when we got the news that it could be your sperm. I got really angry at the universe, and I wanted an apology from anyone, someone. Um, Of course, I targeted my parents because they're my usual punching bag.
1: This kind of standard operating procedure for you, right?
0: (laughs) Well, I was still mad about how they suggested that maybe my walks or my exercises had somehow caused my miscarriage. And I was just sort of happy to have something outside of my body that I could point to and say, see, it's Simon, not me. So get off my back.
1: So but I don't feel like that was it, though. I mean, if it was just about your parents, I feel like you wouldn't have acted the way you did. But
0: it wasn't just my parents. It's like literally everyone who knows that we have fertility issues I mean, even now, I meet busybodies who want to give me advice about getting pregnant or how to avoid miscarriages. I just, I used to listen to them politely, but now I just cut them off and I say, it was a sperm problem. And it's really interesting to see how fast they shut the fuck up after that. Like, before, when they thought it was just an egg ovary problem... I, have to, I should have been doing all these special massages. I should have been praying, meditating. Right,
1: aromatherapy, acupuncture, blah, blah, blah,
0: blah. But as soon as I tell anyone that it's a sperm problem, it's like all those lifestyle changes are immediately, they're just out the window because it's so obviously stupid and irrational. How it sounds that like you would meditate your way to better sperm health or something. Oh,
1: but let's, okay, let me put on my enlightened man hat and just, I'm, I'm completely seeding. The whole process is sexist. The whole process is unfair. I was treated much better about my fertility issues than you were about your fertility issues. But, or this is me throwing Anna under the bus and then backing the bus up over her, okay, <laughs> on the radio. <laughs> so, I, okay, I'm going to say this in front of all these people, okay? and it's because it's a thing that you did, uh, okay. but I don't think you look good in it, but you can, you can defend yourself on it. But you said to me, it wasn't just that you were excited, you told me that you wanted my family to experience the pain that your family had felt about infertility, and that you wanted them to blame themselves
0: and suffer. Yeah. That's super fucking crazy. Uh, yeah, of course it was irrational, but in the moment, that's how I felt. Again, going back to my parents, you know, they love me so much, like my hurts are their hurts, my burdens are their burdens. And I remember one time when we were going through the thick of the infertility, I remember my mom telling me how she blamed herself because she had scoliosis when she was a child. And she thought that all those x-rays that she'd had had somehow messed up her ovaries, which messed up the egg that created me, which messed up my eggs, so I felt like me and my family had been put through all this hell for years. And I wanted someone else to experience it, even if they didn't deserve it.
1: Again, I agree that is sad. You know, and it's sad that your mom imagined this Rube Goldberg device by which she was responsible for our <laughs> infertility. But I don't understand the part where then you want, where, where your family feeling sad makes you want to make my family feel sad.
0: Uh, It's not just a need for reciprocity, I also felt like your family was low-key blaming me, and you know exactly what I'm talking about.
1: I 50% know what you're talking about.
0: You 100% about. know what I'm talking <laughs> I, about.
1: I 60 to 70% know <laughs> what you're talking about.
0: Okay, so for example, the night that we decided to tell your parents about the sperm problem, remember what happened? So
1: I, there's a, I have some recall of it, yes. <laughs>
0: Your mom wanted me to look at some photos of a baby that her cousin had just given birth to, and the cousin had conceived the baby with IVF. And she was like, Anna, this woman has the same problem as you. And I was like, what's that? And she was like, bad eggs.
1: Okay. I Okay. I know my mom shouldn't have said that. To be fair, at the time, my sperm had passed every test. My sperm were, you know, sacred little magic bunny things that had, you know, were just perfect.
0: Yeah, but now they're not.
1: I know. Okay. But... <laughs> I know that she shouldn't have said that. I know that everyone just naturally blamed you and that I mostly got off scot-free.
0: Yeah, thanks for acknowledging that.
1: And look, I know that, you know, again, it's sexist. You know, when when we told my mom about the sperm issues, she said to us, remember, she said to me, now you know what it feels like to be a woman.
0: And how does it feel? It
1: sucks. Being a woman is terrible. I don't recommend it. <laughs> but look, I'm sorry you had to go through that, that people blamed you and that- it was unfair but you know what also sucks your partner being happy and excited that there's something wrong with you and i never did that to you
0: i maybe could have expressed myself a little bit better
1: okay, yeah it was there was a wording issue that's that's <laughs> what we're gonna settle on okay let's just put that aside and maybe just repress it
0: <laughs> move on with yeah I move
1: want. on After the break, we'll hear a different perspective from another couple who also had to deal with male factor infertility. Stay with us.
3: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Only at SleepNumber stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: I want to bring in a different perspective from another couple who had to deal with male factor infertility. I sat down with Nam Tron, who, along with his wife, Aubrey, had to raise money for IVF after they both discovered infertility issues early in their marriage. Nam, thanks so much for joining us and talking about such a tricky subject.
3: Oh, thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it. Uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you was just sort of, could you
1: tell us a little bit about your story with Aubrey and what your diagnosis was?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Aubrey and I have been married for a little over three years now. Um, and we, even before we got married, knew that we would probably want to start trying uh, to have kids probably within the first year uh, that we were together. Um, so we that's exactly what we did. And um, by that, I mean we started... Um, just not using protection at first. Um, and of course you figure it'll happen just by doing that at first. Um, and then after about a year of doing that or six months to a year, I would say we, um, we obviously saw that, you know, it wasn't happening. And so we kind of decided to see a specialist for it. Um, not really knowing what to expect, but more with the mindset of, you know, let's just get this ball rolling if something is wrong and be able to catch it early. And so, um, you know, after a long time of testing and doing all those things, we figured out at first that we had male factor infertility after doing my tests. And, uh, you know, from, from there, we um, have figured out other, you know, factors that go along with that. But we, we started off with the male factor infertility after about a year of, of having, you know, no success.
1: So when you first got that diagnosis, how did that feel to you? Were you really
3: surprised by it? Was it like shock? It was awful. (laughs) It was awful. Um, I got to tell you, I think we've kind of talked about this, too, with, you know, with other male friends of mine is that we we kind of get brought up with this notion that we're going to be it's never even a consideration that you're not going to be able to get, you know, have kids when you're when you get to that time in your life. And we're, we're so guarded against it in so many ways so it never even really occurs to us, right? Um, yeah,
1: you're a lot more afraid of getting a girl pregnant than exactly, not getting
3: her pregnant. Yeah, in school from a very young age, they teach you, you just don't look at girls the wrong way, or you're you're gonna get them pregnant. So, and to give you some background too, mm-hmm. it's like my my dad is one mm-hmm. of eight kids, mm-hmm. and he also has seven half siblings, so he's mm-hmm. one of fifteen. My my grandpa, his dad, mm-hmm. had at least fifteen kids. That's that's how he put it to me. Mm-hmm. My dad is like, I have at least fourteen siblings that I know about. <laughs> Okay. So that gives you an idea of their kind of understanding of fertility. It's it's not an issue. <laughs> right. So to them my, when when yeah. you come
1: with a problem they're saying, "Well, you didn't get it from us." Uh-huh. And my yeah. mom
3: is one of five. <laughs> so there's a ton of kids and then hmm. all of their siblings have a ton of kids. So I'm probably literally the only person that I know of mm-hmm. in my entire family that has this issue. So it was, you know, it's hard for us to hear that because you're looking for support, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, And then having to understand that your parents are people, particularly from from our culture, that just they're ignorant to the whole process, just like we were before we had to go through it. So that was probably the hardest. But we're we're very lucky in that that was really the only time that we had to tell someone where they were a little less than supportive. And my parents since then have been very supportive. It was just Mm. it was tough to hear at first because we were very new to it, too. So.
1: I mean so obviously one thing that's really tied into all this is masculinity. I you know I've talked about in an earlier episode that when I was getting the good sperm test reports I wasn't just told that my sperm was you know adequate and passing muster. I was told that my sperm was you know fantastic. <laughs> I was told that I had great swimmers, you know, I was told that I you know they're hard workers and all this stuff and superhuman. You, yeah, superhuman, <laughs> you know, and there's and there I took pride in it, you know, and yeah. it was hard not to take pride and I think there is something very man about like very manly about the idea of like my penis and everything it does is wonderful and it was a reflection of me as a person and my self-worth
3: yeah
1: uh and so sort of how do you how did you
3: feel about that did you feel i don't know would you were you mad at your penis <laughs> yeah um our job in this whole process is the easiest thing ever and so when it doesn't work it's like well you're pretty useless <laughs> you're, <laughs> in your role in this, right? Your job is to bring the sperm and your sperm doesn't work. It's like, well, what are you, what are you even here for? Like, It's, <laughs> it's awful. Um, so you combine that with the the social aspect of it of, oh, hey, you're a guy. Literally hmm. the only thing you have to do is bring the sperm. Yeah. And my <laughs> wife has even said that half jokingly, I think, but <laughs> You know when I have when it's time to do the procedure and they have to get my sample. It's like oh tough for you. I have to yeah. go, you know, go under and do all these things, and you have to go jizz in a cup, um, and put it. <laughs> in you the know, there's there's
1: strain to that
3: too. You yeah. know, it's not it's not as easy as it yeah, sounds. Everyone out there. There's a lot, of, there's a there. lot of preparation <laughs> that goes into that. I yeah. try to tell her. But that, that aspect of it, I don't know if you have a, a story about that, too. But that's a weird experience for me, too, that I don't think yeah, you can Yeah, we, really we talked duplicate. a little bit
1: about that in our first episode, that it, yeah. it's it's creepy and it's strange. And I, I one story I didn't tell is that I remember the, the first time I went in, for some reason, the guy who runs the sperm part of the clinic. And I don't this is a physical description thing. It's not fair to this gentleman. But he's got a little bit of a lazy eye. So <laughs> he's he's got a little of an odd look. Uh And I remember I went in, I did my business, you know, and I came out and I brought it up to him. And this guy's kind of looking at me and also looking at the wall. And he says huh? Didn't take you very long, huh? <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm thinking, this is your your only job is to deal with guys all day who have just done this and who have pride issues about, you know, their sperm or whatever. And that's what you come out with is like, oh, that was quick. You have to wonder how many
3: <laughs> one-liners he has like in his back pocket yeah. for that throughout the entire and day. And
1: I, I don't feel like if a woman came in and like, or they only got one egg out of the IVF or they didn't get another that like
3: the nurse on the way out would be like, "Oh, all empty in there, huh?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, funny story for you. Okay, so the first time I ever had to do that in a cup was at this um the clinic or whatever. And mm. I went in and first of all, it's weird because you have to consider, okay, how is this how is this going to work? Um and their bathroom was literally right outside of their like reception counter. (laughs) And so I went in there and you can literally hear all the nurses at the front desk talking to each other. And all I hear, there's one nurse there that was this older Filipino lady. And all I hear through the entire time is her voice. And it's just like in my ear and I can't (laughs) tell what she's talking about, but it's a very thick accented (laughs) voice. And I'm in there half thinking to myself, OK, this is like supposed mm-hmm. to be the easiest part of this entire yeah. process. And I, I can't do it. Like, it's <laughs> how am I supposed to do that? And I think I was in there probably like mm-hmm. half an hour. Mm-hmm. They were probably wondering, like, what happened to me. But I told Aubrey about it later. It's like, OK, I realize in the grand scheme of things that's not difficult, but mm-hmm. it was interesting at the very least. And then every time since then, I've h- kind of had that stick with me a little bit. Like, yeah, I <laughs> would say, you know, my,
1: our clinic stuck the room next to a giant air conditioner unit. So that just drowned out all the sound. And I was very grateful for that. Oh, nice. I nice. was very, uh, you wonder if they smart design. I they... think they did. Okay. I think they did. It was a smart design choice. That's, good. That's uh, good. did you feel like having a male factor in fertility gave you more sympathy for what women go through, you know, with fertility pressure?
3: I think so. I mean, I think I, not to say I was unsympathetic, but it's really, it's really Mm -hmm. hard to relate to pregnancy in general until Mm -hmm. you start going through this stuff. You know, there's Mm -hmm. people who will never understand just how much goes into getting pregnant and staying pregnant unless you go through this IVF process and you have it broken down step by step because there's Mm -hmm. so many things wrong with what, with what is usually a, a natural process. So I I mean, I loved my wife, obviously, before all of this happened, but I never thought that the respect aspect for Mm -hmm. her and all that she's had to go through with this process would just grow as much as it has because that woman deals with a lot and is still dealing with a lot. And it's only, this is only to get to the point where you can have kids and then the real stuff starts, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like just getting to point A Mm -hmm. and so absolutely, I think if if anything, if you if you didn't have an appreciation for what women go through before with pregnancy mm. and how hard it was, when you have it broken down step by step, there's no way to to come away with it feeling anything other than wow, I can't believe you can do
1: that. <laughs> uh, one last question: Would you have any advice if there's someone out there who is discovering that they have male factor infertility and sort of how to handle it emotionally and how to move forward?
3: It's a very, very slippery slope, I would say, when you start to play the blame game—not um, just with your partner, but with yourself. It's—it's it's something that I think you, as if you, the better the better you can understand that this is going to be a really tough process all around, um, and that you know, just adding that onto yourself, that extra stress on yourself is not going to help anything. I know that's a lot easier said than done, just like everything involved with this process, but. I think I was very lucky to have a partner that never really put that burden on me, even when we were in the point of the process where we thought it was just, you know, male factor. I never, ever got the sense that she blamed me for it. And she, you know, was, I, I think I'm very lucky in that aspect because I don't think everybody relates in that same way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it helps a lot that we don't, we try not to put that on each other, but... I guess my, my best advice would be you have to lean really heavily on whoever you're going through this with because um, you're going to need each other a lot. It's, and even then, you're going to have times where you feel very alone. So um, it's really, really tough. And, and I would just say the, the better relationship that you have with your partner, the, the easier it's going to be on you.
0: It's really helpful to hear other infertile couples' experiences about pride and blame and shame. So let's talk about what happened next after you and I were done fighting.
1: Uh, Yeah, so I went to the ball specialist doctor, and I passed another round of tests. My sperm didn't have any weird DNA fragmentation issues, and my chromosomes were all normal. The doctor seemed pretty stumped, and he suggested we should just do nothing except repeat IVF, which really frustrated you.
0: Yeah, after the horrible results we got the first time, I did not just want to go ahead and repeat the whole thing again, expecting a different result.
1: So we didn't. I went to get a testicular ultrasound. And this time, the ball doctor did manage to find one abnormality in my testicles. He found a varicose vein.
0: Basically, all the veins in your body are designed to have blood flow one way. But sometimes a vein gets screwed up, and it lets blood flow backwards the wrong way. That's what a varicose vein is. Though the biological mechanism isn't entirely understood, there is emerging evidence that men with varicose veins in their testicles have more fertility problems than men without varicose veins.
1: The thinking is that the vein causes blood to pool near the testicle, and the blood then overheats the sperm and screws it up right as it's heading out of the penis on its sacred mission. Now, okay, I don't. We already did the argument segment, I don't want to reopen the argument segment, but this is another area where you and I had a disagreement, because I felt a ton of pressure from you to have surgery on this vein.
0: Uh, I guess it just boils down to not wanting to do the same procedure over and over again without changing anything and expecting different results. We had run out of things to change in me, and at that point I was already feeling really frustrated and exhausted from months of injections and hormone swings and failed procedures. To be honest, I just wanted this shit over, baby or no baby.
1: I think, okay, what bothered me, besides the doctor slicing open my testicles, was that they had no test results to refer to. You know, there were no tests that showed anything wrong with my sperm, and the doctor himself basically said, yeah, it's a shot in the dark, I can do it. So, I don't know, eventually I agreed to do it. Why? I mean, to be honest, a big part of it is that thing you were just saying, that you you wanted this shit to be over. And I knew how angry and frustrated you were, and I knew you might just give up on all this if I didn't do it. So
0: it's all on me? No,
1: it's it's not all on you. It's also, I didn't want to spend the rest of my life childless and wondering if I had held myself back from something that would have worked. So even though I maintain to this day that the evidence that it would work was garbage, I just, I don't know how I could have lived with myself without exhausting every option, especially after watching all the things that were done to you to try to eke out a 1% better chance of us having a baby together.
0: So let's talk about the actual ball surgery. What was that like? It
1: was weird. Um, So the way the surgery works is that they were going to cut open one of my testicles, the good testicle that didn't have a varicose vein, and remove the sperm directly from the source. That way, you know, it skips all potential problems. So, of course, I found myself in an operating room, naked below the waist with two nurses shaving my testicles. I watched big swaths of angry Jewish curls flying away. The nurse saw I was pretty nervous and asked if I was okay. I told her, I'm just having a very new experience.
0: (laughs) So what was the room like?
1: It was a lot like a dentist's office. Um, You know, I remember I was trying really hard to be the cool, funny patient who doesn't get anxious or scared. So when the doctor entered, I quipped, sorry, you caught me with my pants down.
0: Oh my god.
1: He replied, don't worry, we're almost ready. You're about to have the cleanest balls in town.
0: (laughs) Was the surgery painful? Uh,
1: The very beginning was very painful. The only real pain is the needle being inserted into the testicle when they're injecting the anesthesia. It's a really sharp burning sensation, but it is over pretty quickly. And part of what's so weird about the procedure is that it's a local anesthetic. So I was awake and talking to the doctor and his team the entire time. The surgery was also very fast. I don't have an exact length of time, but I know that Hotel California started playing at the beginning, and it finished about a quarter of the way through the surgery.
0: Isn't that song like 45 Minutes? It's like eight. (laughs) Are there any other memories worth sharing?
1: Just that the doctors and I discussed NBA playoff basketball while they cut open my testicles. And that at one point, I looked down and he was using a cauterizing machine on my testicles. And I watched puffs of smoke rising up from my testicles.
0: (laughs) What was the smoke from?
1: Uh, well, I guess he said I shouldn't worry about it uh, because it was just the anesthesia burning up. But the smell of your burning testicles is very strange and not something I recommend. Mm. Uh, the only other Tasty. really distur- <laughs> The only other really disturbing moment was when he had finished removing the sperm from my testicle and placed it in a little tiny Petri dish. He then chopped it up like he was chopping a salad, except it was a salad made out of part of my body. Then they stitched me up and took my sperm into another room where your eggs were waiting.
0: That's right. While you were doing that, I was having my second IVF egg extraction surgery. We went under the knife on the same day at the same time, which was pretty weird because then we had to go home and sit around complaining to each other about the pain.
1: Yeah, I, I spent the next week wearing a jock strap and a blue surgical glove full of ice pressed against my testicles.
0: Oh, and remember when we got home, I asked you about your pain? And you remember what you said?
1: I said that the the greatest pain of all, the real tragedy here, was that because you had surgery on the same day as me, I didn't get to milk my pain and suffering for all it was worth.
0: My baby does enjoy being (laughs) coddled.
1: I mean, can you just, can you imagine I had surgery on my testicles and I didn't get to like be pampered and praised and, uh, anyways. Oh, there's, okay. There's one more thing I want to mention about the surgery and then we'll get off it, which is I wasn't allowed to ejaculate for a week after the surgery, you know, everything in there has to kind of reset. And when I was finally allowed to, you know, do it again, it felt like a car backfiring.
0: So about a week after our dual surgeries and after Simon's first car-backfiring ejaculation, we got the results from our second IVF cycle. This time, they managed to extract 21 eggs.
1: Blackjack! That's what the nurse shouted.
0: But only 16 were mature.
1: Still a good number.
0: And of those 16, we ended up with six successfully fertilized embryos. And after chromosomal testing, we ended up with one normal embryo.
1: So yeah, uh... Oh, after all the pain and the suffering and the ball surgery and the fighting and the money, we ended up with worse results than the first time.
0: We were pretty much out of options. The doctors had nothing new they could tell us. After two IVF cycles, we had two viable embryos and no reason to think that a third cycle would produce better results. We decided to bite the bullet and move on to implantation.
1: Next time on IVFML, two chances to have a baby.
0: Okay, so this is a list of the drugs I was taking and injecting leading up to the embryo transfer. Monday morning, Simon injects one cc of progesterone oil into my ass. Then I take two estrogen tabs, a baby aspirin, one... Aspirin, Tomorrow,
1: and we are taking a pregnancy, pregnancy test, and that's going to tell us if our first IVF round worked.
2: Ooh.
3: You've been listening to IVFML, a HuffPost podcast. IVFML is written and hosted by Anna Almendrala and Simon Gans and produced and edited by Nick Offenberg. Artwork by Isabella Carapella. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, leave a rating, or send an email to ivfml at huffpost.com.